Hi, this is John Harcher, and welcome to the premiere of Valleys of Numenor, a look at sword and sorcery and fantasy and the forms and expressions it's taken over the years in media. If you've heard my other podcast on Jimi Hendrix, Keep on Grooving, you'll get the reference in the title. As you can tell by the name, we'll be starting with a weekly recap of the upcoming Amazon series based on J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. Well, not that Lord of the Rings, but all those little bits and pieces he added in along the way to tell the story about what happened before Lord of the Rings. The Rings of Power, the book that Tolkien forgot to write. If you had told John Roland Ruel Tolkien in 1917, as he recovered from illnesses he contracted in the trenches of World War I and began to write the story he'd call The Fall of Gondolin, that this would lead to a multi-billion dollar empire, he'd probably have said you were insane. But that's exactly what happened. From those humble beginnings, one of the greatest modern epics arose. Tolkien's career as a college professor and entomologist meaning he really knew how to dissect and put together languages, which he'd certainly put to use, took a little diversion when he published a children's story in 1937 about a little fellow who lived in a hole in the ground called The Hobbit. This was such a success, his publisher Stanley Unwin asked if he had anything else. As it happened, he was preparing a sort of alternate mythology of a place he'd called Middle Earth. The story he had in mind involved the fall of Gondolin, a love story between a mortal man and a mortal elf that was based on his own romance with his wife Edith, not that Mrs. Tolkien was an elf, mind you, and cheery little story about the curse set upon the children of Huron. He called this huge epic the Silmarillion. He sent it to the publishers, at which point Unwin basically said, What am I supposed to do with this? Could you please give me a sequel to The Hobbit? Dejectedly, Tolkien started creating the sequel that had been requested. But along the way, he decided to infuse parts of the Silmarillion into this story to create a much larger mythology. He said at one point, I started out writing a sequel to The Hobbit, but it ended up becoming a sequel to The Silmarillion. This writing lasted the better part of a decade and a half before The Fellowship of the Ring was finally released in mid-1954. The two towers followed before the year was out, but Return of the King was delayed almost a year due to Tolkien's difficulty with the promised appendices, where he'd add in even more material from the days of the Silmarillion. He tried to get that work published again alongside Lord of the Rings, wanting to call it The War of the Jewels and the Rings, But at that point, they just wanted the Hobbits. The Lord of the Rings was a big success upon publication, but it became even larger a decade later when it appeared in paperback, so any kid with three to five dollars in their pockets could get the whole thing at once. Its success led to a few of his other works being published. The Tolkien Reader, which was a collection of various material, including Farmer Giles of Ham, where the hero battles a very different kind of dragon than Bilbo faced, and poems based on a character from Lord of the Rings, Tom Bombadil. There was also a modernesque farce called Smith of Wooten Major, and an album of songs based on Lord of the Rings called The Road Goes Ever On. But he still kept trying to get the Silmarillion into a form where it could be published. Unfortunately, he never lived to see it as he passed away in 1973. 
His son Christopher, who'd been working with him on keeping his papers in order, took it upon himself, with some help, to get the work out. And in 1977, the Silmarillion finally hit the bookshelves. Forty years earlier, it would have been way too much for audiences to digest. But with the introduction of many of the stories in Lord of the Rings, readers at least had some touchstone to refer back to. It's still a difficult book. I only read it in full in my 40s. But it does fit together with the earlier work in a way that's understandable. Now, Tolkien broke the history of Middle-earth up into three ages. The first age was dealt with in the Silmarillion. The end part of the third age was dealt with in The Hobbit, in an early bit of retconning, and Lord of the Rings, which also described the events earlier in the third age that set the story moving forward. But what about the second age? According to Tolkien, this age had two major events, the drowning of the island of Numenor, and the last battle of elves and men against the evil Dark Lord Sauron, where the One Ring would begin its journey towards the latter two stories. But he never wrote a book specifically dealing with this age. He'd begun one in the 30s as part of a contest with his friend Narnia author C.S. Lewis. Lewis's part of the bargain led to his Professor Ransom Space Trilogy. Tolkien began work on a story entitled The Lost Road, which would have time travelers from modern England find themselves in the Numorian civilization before its downfall. But as we'll see with many things Tolkien began work on, it was never finished. Now, that's not to say he didn't write about it. On the contrary, he wrote a lot. He wrote so much about Middle-earth, Christopher was able to follow the Silmarillion in 1980 with a book entitled Unfinished Tales. This contains stories from all three ages, as well as a bit of some additional material filling in the gaps, like the names of the Blue Wizards. I'll get back to that one in a minute. But he wasn't finished. He then put together a 12-volume set called The History of Middle-Earth, encompassing all the material from 1917 through his father's last writings, including The Fall of Gondolin, The Lost Road, and many other stories. He was so consumed with this, he specifically did not dedicate any space to The Hobbit, since it was originally a separate entity. He left that to another Tolkien scholar, John Radcliffe, and that one ended up taking up two volumes. Now, once the history was completed, Christopher decided to create a unified story around the tales of Turin Taramber and the children of Huron hit bookstores in 2007. Many fans hoped he would continue the practice and create similar books for the other two great tales of the First Age, Baron and Luthien, and The Fall of Gondolin. Those would be tougher since his father hadn't created a finished version for either of those. So he came up with a different approach. 2017's book on Baron and Luthien took all the versions of the story from the early lost tale through the epic poems and later shorter attempts and arranged them chronologically to show how the story progressed. Sadly, he announced in the forward to that book it would be his last and he would retire. But he couldn't quite walk away without finishing the trilogy, and a year later, The Fall of Gondolin was released, encompassing the destruction of the hidden city, the escape of Tour, and how his son Arendel set out to find a new home for his people. With that book, he retired and ended up passing away in January of 2020. He'd served his father well. But this was not the end of Middle-Earth-related releases. In 2021, 
Tolkien scholar Carl Hostetter picked up the torch left by Christopher Tolkien. He assembled a collection of letters and later writings dealing with various aspects of Middle-earth lore called The Nature of Middle-earth. It's looked at as sort of an unofficial 13th volume to the history of Middle-earth. Then in November 2022, scholar Brian Sibley's editorial skills will be put to use on the book The Fall of Numenor. This will, for the first time, put the stories and fragments about the Second Age all in one place and make it into a coherent story. Now, why would they be doing this book in particular? I think you already know the answer. We'll get to the reason why in a little bit. With this much success, you knew the performing arts would be beckoning at some point. The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings had a few radio adaptations through the 60s and 70s, mostly on the BBC. Film would be a tough nut to crack since it would require more than a few special effects. But people were game. Supposedly the Beatles were interested in doing one in the mid-60s, I think after Help, with that film's director Richard Lester taking the helm. Deliverance and Excalibur director Jean Borman supposedly came close in the early 70s to doing the story in a single one-hour and 40-minute film. Not sure how that would have worked out, but it took animation to finally bring the two stories to life. The Hobbit came out first, premiering Thanksgiving weekend 1977 on NBC. I remember seeing the commercial for it, but didn't end up watching it until many years later. It was done by Rankin Bass, who made all those great Christmas specials with Rudolph and Frosty, and mixed established stars like Richard Boone, John Huston, and Otto Preminger, alongside animation stalwarts like Hans Conried, Paul Fries, Don Messick, John Stephenson, and Tony the Tiger himself, Thurl Ravenscroft. A year later, the Lord of the Rings hit movie screens thanks to Fritz the Cat director Ralph Bakshi. It featured a large amount of rotoscoping, which is drawing animation over film of real people, and had the voices of John Hurt as Aragorn and C-3PO himself, Anthony Daniels, as Legolas. The film's main flaw is it's only half the story. When Bakshi went back to the studio for money to do the second part, they turned him down. So Rankin-Bass stepped back into the fold and kind of finished the story off with Return of the King. It had Orson Bean, who played Bilbo in The Hobbit, as Frodo, and added to the cast Roddy McDowell and William Conrad, reuniting him with his Bullwinkle castmate, Paul Fries. That still left about half of a book unadapted. Now, Return of the King was released after a lawsuit with the Tolkien estate was settled, and it wouldn't be the last time this happened. A number of them over the next two decades kept further adaptation plans on hold until they all got settled, and New Zealand filmmaker Peter Jackson directed a three-film version in the early 2000s. I heard it kind of turned out okay. All kidding aside, the enormous critical and commercial success of the Lord of the Rings trilogy led to talk, and eventually, once all the lawsuits were settled, pressure to do a big-screen adaptation of The Hobbit as well. Jackson originally didn't want to tackle it and left it to someone else to make their mark on Middle-earth. For a time, it looked like Guillermo del Toro would get the chance to write and direct the film or films. But much like Tolkien, del Toro has his own list of unfinished projects, and unfortunately, due to delays, The Hobbit was one of them. However, he did do enough work to maintain story and writing credit on the release films. So it fell to Jackson to once more bring Middle-earth to life, and it was a bumpier road this time out. 
Not like making three Lord of the Rings films was easy, especially replacing lead characters shooting began, but I think most people would say Vigo as a replacement Aragorn did the trick. For The Hobbit, problems range from a flood ravaging large parts of the set to having to come up with a third film since they hadn't finished filming the second one by the time it was set to premiere. For all of these stories, I highly recommend the appendices included with the extended versions of all six films. They're like a masterclass in every aspect of filmmaking. By the way, I prefer the extended versions of all the films, though I probably would have trimmed a couple of scenes out of Return of the King. The one with Eowyn and Mary sticks out in my head as one in particular that we could lose. Another one was the second time uh, Aragorn comes off the boat with the skeleton army. You can kind of only do that once and make it thrilling. It's kind of like when Godzilla flew on his tail and Godzilla versus Megalon. You know, you do it once, it's funny. The second time, like, uh, okay, we saw this already. As The Hobbit was hitting movie theaters, a program was building up interest over on HBO, a little show called Game of Thrones. Its success prompted other outlets to begin looking for a fantasy property of their own. This also coincided with the rise of digital streaming systems as a viable alternate option to cable. Amazon Prime started out as just a way for people to order things and get free shipping without always buying $35 worth of stuff. As an extra, you'd get the ability to watch some movies and TV shows and listen to some albums. Eventually, the video portion of it became its primary function. So if you have a channel to program, you need material. Word went out that Amazon had Jeff Bezos wanted his own Game of Thrones. I mean, he had a rocket ship, he had a newspaper. Why not that too? In 2017, it looked like he had what he was searching for in not one, but two properties. As Andre over on the Midnight's Edge video channel pointed out, he would get it with a two-pronged approach. The high fantasy element would be met with the acquisition of Lord of the Rings, while the sex and gore part would be handled with an adaptation of Robert E. Howard's Conan the Barbarian stories. But in the words of Phil Collins, something happened on the way to heaven. Internal politics and a change at the head of programming at Amazon led to the cancellation of the Conan project as not something that fit into Amazon's picture. It was replaced by the fantasy series Wheel of Time, which ironically enough was written by Robert Jordan, who before starting the Wheel of Time series had written numerous pastiche novels about Conan the Barbarian. Now, despite being picked up after Lord of the Rings, Wheel of Time has already aired its first season. It was very highly watched, but I'm not sure how much buzz it generated out in the public. I haven't read the Wheel of Time series, so I'm not sure how faithful it was to the books or not. Supposedly there are some major departures, but maybe they'll be handled as the series progresses to bring them closer or come up with explanations as to why they did it one way or another. It's already set for at least three seasons. In contrast, very little was heard about the Lord of the Rings project for years. Then some dribs and drabs came out about who was writing it, who was in the cast, things like that. There were rumors Peter Jackson would be involved, but he clearly stepped away this time, or was forcibly pushed for legal reasons, and let others take the lead. Oddly enough, to get back to the beginning, Jackson was busy working on a project about the Beatles. The main thing that came out of all this talk was that the series would be set in Middle-Earth's second age, before The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings, and before many of the familiar characters were even born, though few of the others who appeared in the movies would be in the series. Finally, a premiere date was set, 
September 2nd, 2022. In January of that year, the name of the series was officially announced as the Rings of Power. A teaser trailer ran during the Super Bowl where you'd want to run something this high profile. It uh, was met with mixed reaction, I would say. I'm not going to delve into the criticisms and praises right now because I want to deal with the series itself. We'll see as the episodes progress if they ended up focusing on the right things, made the right story decisions, things like that. But I will say the reaction video that Amazon ended up yanking off of YouTube was really embarrassing. The showrunners are Patrick McKay and John D. Payne. Guess he didn't want to be mixed up with a guy from Miracle on 34th Street. It's going to be hard to judge this show based on their previous work because, well, this is their first show. I mean, literally their first show. But they're not doing it by themselves. The writers and directors of individual episodes have a lot of experience on both big screen and small, including The Sopranos and Game of Thrones, J.A. Boyana being among the more experienced names. In any case, I do not envy them in the task they have before them. Not only do they have to create a linear story for the second age when neither J.R.R. or Christopher Tolkien ever fashioned one longer than 30 pages or so, it's even more difficult than the task David and D.B. had with Game of Thrones. They had five books to work with before they had to strike out on their own. They did really good with the first three, had a tough time with the next two, and as for what they had to come up with on their own, well... To paraphrase one of my favorite guilty pleasures, they had a long way to go, but didn't need to take a short time to get there. In contrast to that, Patrick and John don't even have a whole book to go off of. And not only that, the Tolkien bibliography when it comes to media is a legal minefield. Even now, there's some battle going on about future projects unrelated to the Amazon show, but may also include a projected anime film for 2024. The estate is very specific about what they will allow to be put on screen. So far, it's only the material that appeared in Tolkien's lifetime, namely The Hobbit, The Lord of the Rings trilogy, and believe it or not, this is important, the prologue The Fellowship of the Ring, and the appendix attached to the end of Return of the King. Anything from The Silmarillion, Unfinished Tales, History of Middle-Earth, that's all off-limits. The meeting of Gandalf and Thorin at the beginning of Desolation of Smaug and the linking of the necromancer of Dol Gadur to Sauron were okay because they appeared in the Lord of the Rings books. But anything that was only in the quest for Aragorn's story from Unfinished Tales, which goes over some of the same territory as Durin's folk in the appendix but adds some details, could not be used. This restraint was put to amusing use in a scene in an unexpected party where Bilbo asked Gandalf about how many wizards there are. Gandalf names himself, Saruman, and Radagast, but when it comes to the blue wizards, he says he can't remember their names. The reason for this is they were named in the section about the Astari, the wizards in Tolkien speak, in Unfinished Tales, but those names do not appear anywhere in the Lord of the Rings books, so they're not allowed to use them. A little inside baseball, but used to amusing effect. So Patrick and John have to find a way to flesh out the material that appears either in the text of the stories in Lord of the Rings or in the appendix, but they can neither use nor contradict any of the material in some of the other sources. 
including the Silmarillion, which has a section dedicated to the Second Age called Akalabeth. Even if the upcoming Fall of Numenor book was out already, it's an open question how much they could actually use. I have to imagine they should have this huge board in their writing room with everything laid out. You know, we can use this, we have to do this, we can't use that name or can't use that event. You know, take the pop culture reference of your choice, you know, Glenn Beck's chalkboard or Alice's chart from Elworld. It must be that much of a mess. So now let's take a look at Appendix B at the end of Return of the King entitled The Tale of Years and see what events Amazon has to choose from. And to show you how little there was, the first age is noted by a paragraph, but we know Tolkien had written the whole Silmarillion to cover this. The second age takes up two and a half pages. The third age takes up 17 pages. So there's a lot of room to play with, but there are certain things that have to be hit. So here we go. So in year one, the Grey Havens, where everybody goes to at the end of Return of the King, was founded, as was the city of Linden, where the High Elves of Gilgalad would live. In year 32, men discover Numenor, and a few years later, the dwarves begin to head to the Mines of Moria. We jump ahead 400 years for the death of King Elros, son of Erendil and brother of the elf Elrond. You know, kind of think of them as the Castor and Pollux of Middle-earth. Despite the stories being closely linked to Celtic and Norse mythologies, a lot of the early material has ties to Greek mythology as well, particularly the fall of Gondolin and Troy, with Tour being kind of a parallel to Aeneas. So next, in year 500, Sauron returns to Middle-earth after the defeat of his lord Morgoth at the end of the First Age. In year 1000, he goes to Mordor and starts building his tower, Barad-dûr. Over the next 400 years or so, he tries to gain favor with Gilgalad, but the Elf King blows him off, so Sauron turns his attention to the Elven Ringsmith and eventually gets them to make the Rings of Power while he goes off and makes the One Ring. Now, at the same time, Celebrimbor makes the three Elven Rings, Naria, Nenya, and Vilya. Should that have been Vilya? They kind of go together? No. And he ends up realizing what Sauron is up to. The elven rings are hidden away, and Sauron and the elves go to war. After much destruction, Sauron is driven back to Mordor, but begins to think about taking over Numenor. Around 2250, things in Numenor start taking a dive, no pun intended. Though they've established themselves along the coast of the main continent, internal strife is tearing it apart. Around a thousand years later, a civil war leads to Alfarazan taking the throne. Sauron is taken prisoner in Numenor, but manages to gain the king's ear and spurs him into some not-so-good ideas, like attacking the Valar, or kind of the equivalent to the archangels like Gabriel and Michael. This does not end well as a Valar decide to wipe Numenor off the map, taking Sauron's more presentable physical form with it. The human Elendil gathers up his sons and a group of followers on a bunch of boats and get away. The survivors go on to find the cities of Arnor and the more familiar one to people who have seen the movies, Gondor. A hundred years later, Sauron attacks Gondor and destroys that white tree they have in front there. Like a good sailor, Elendil essentially goes, that's all I can stand, I can't stand no more, and makes an alliance with Gilgalad to take Sauron down once and for all. Their huge battle leads to the Dark Lord's defeat, spoiler, and their death, 
and Elendil's son Isildur cuts the ring off Sauron's hand with the hilt of his father's shattered sword, Narsil. Technically, the Second Age ends here, but for those who have seen Lord of the Rings, you know what happens to Isildur and how the ring gets lost for Smeagol to get a hold of it and later lose it for Bilbo to find it and hand it down to Frodo. So that's the basic outline. The creators have already said they're going to compress things quite a bit so there's not a constant turnover of characters. The adaptation of Foundation over on Apple Plus had a similar problem to overcome as the eight stories making up the original trilogy spans over 100 years. It'll be interesting to see exactly where they decide to start the Rings of Power. If I were to guess, I would say Numenor was already established in a force in Middle-earth. They may use flashbacks at some point to go back and address how it was founded and other things that happened in the early days as the first stage became the second. The ending, however, is clear. Numenor is destroyed and the elves and humans unite to defeat Sauron. Personally, I think the final episode should be the beginning of the Third Age where Isildur loses the ring since we know that already happened. It'd be a logical end for a show called The Rings of Power. Now, I'm looking to do a video podcast and take a quick look at the previews from the title reveal the Super Bowl spot in the July trailers, see what they show us and what they don't. Haven't done one before, so hopefully it'll come out presentable. So I guess that'll do it for now. Once the first episodes drop, we'll have a better idea of where they're going and possibly how they'll get there. We'll see if they focus on the right things, if they pick the right cast, and if they take the right approach with the established characters like Galadriel and Elrond. Plus, see if the newly created characters fit in nicely to Tolkien's world. Then after the fall of Numenor comes out, we'll compare and contrast the book and the show and see how they manage the material. Here's hoping for the best. Next time, we'll recap episode one, see how it matches up with what they could use, what they couldn't, and if the effects actually look good on my 4K TV. That'll be next time on Valleys of Numenor. Please remember to hit the subscribe button. I'll update you next time on exactly where you can find us. You can definitely find us here on Spotify, that's for sure. I'm John Harper. Thanks for listening.